Welcome to All Together Now. <clears throat> this is Eleanor Lacane. On Tuesday, President Biden gave a State of the Union address to the nation. What did he say and why does it matter to us? What did Biden need to do in this speech to advance his agenda and possibly to win re-election next year? And what happens behind the scenes when a president is about to give a State of the Union address? Our guest today will answer all these questions and more. David Kuznet was the chief speechwriter for former President Bill Clinton during the 1992 campaign and the first two years in the White House. So he can give us a behind the scenes view on the making of a State of the Union address. Kuznet was also a speechwriter for former Democratic presidential nominees, Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis. He has written speeches for many leaders in government and politics, labor, business, education, civil and human rights organizations. Kuznet has authored or co-authored five books, including Speaking American, How the Democrats Can Win in the 90s, which was the handbook for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, Love the Work, Hate the Job, why America's Best Workers Are More Unhappy Than Ever. A third book, America Needs a Raise, written with former AFL-CIO President John Sweeney. A fourth book, Talking Past Each Other, What Everyday Americans Believe and Elites Don't Get About the Economy. And his fifth book, To Build New York, A Hundred Years of Infrastructure, highly relevant today with the amount of money that the Democrats are now going to be pumping in to rebuilding America. Kuznet has also written many articles for leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, New Republic, and the American Prospect. Kuznet has been communications director of People for the American Way and field communications director for the Public Employee Union, AFSME. David Kuznet, welcome back to All Together Now. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You're so brilliant and so experienced. Uh, let's start off with kind of the highlights. What would you say is the key message that President Biden delivered on Tuesday? Well, well I think the, the, the mantra of the speech was let's finish the job. And job has a lot of resonances for the Biden record and for that speech. The during the past during the past month, the economy created more than a half million new jobs, which and and it's the lowest unemployment rate in more than half a century. And as President Biden said, the economy has created 12 million new jobs over the past two years, which is more than were created in any other complete presidential term. So he's clearly the jobs president, but as he said on, on Tuesday night, we still have a job to do because there are so many people in places that feel locked out and left behind in this economy, not just the economy of the past two years of the economy of the COVID pandemic, but really the economy of the past 40 years or more when the when the country has been deindustrializing, when the middle class has been hollowed out, when whole regions of the country that used to be our industrial heartland have been abandoned, when union density has declined from about a third of the workforce to about 10% of the workforce. And for most of that period, real wages, the, what the buying power and the paychecks that people earn has declined or stagnated. So the, the president made clear that he, he knows there's a lot more that has to be done. And he challenged a, a Congress where the Republicans now narrowly control the House, even though it seemed on Tuesday night that they can't even control themselves. But he, he challenged the Congress to work with him for, for the common good. I think that's an excellent summary of, of a very long speech. It went over and over, I think, but it was fabulous. I thought it was one of the speeches I've ever heard at a State of the Union, and I felt it was perhaps the most progressive State of the Union 
speech of any president that I've heard in my time. I don't know, would you agree that he's really coming out swinging for the working people in the middle class? I'd agree. I think it's the most progressive speech of any president in our in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And I guess going back a little bit before, I think you really have to go back to Harry Truman to find a president who really saw the economy as Joe Biden does through the lens of what's good for working Americans. And you have to go back to Franklin D. Roosevelt with his Four Freedoms speech mm-hmm. in the 1940s and during his, during his third term in the 1940s to find a president who has such a progressive view of the role that government can play in making people's lives better. Yeah, and I thought President Biden did a great job. I mean, to me, it felt like the theme of progress and possibility. He was telling us, I've been in office now uh, for the two years, and we've done a, a lot. And he's passed just amazing legislation, done some great things, which I think most people don't seem to even know about. So he had a chance showcase some of what he's done and at the same time like you said the job isn't finished we still have more to do so um it's the progress and the possibility and i i thought that really worked really well as a theme yeah that's right i think he had had a, a challenge that i think is different from the two other progressive presidents of the past 30 years bill clinton and Barack Obama, people were by the by their th- third year, people were aware that President Clinton and President Obama had done things. The Republican part of the country did not like what they had done, but people were aware they had done things, and they had they had the challenge that if you told people the details of what Bill Clinton had done or what Barack Obama had done, there was pretty pretty overwhelming support for it. If you just describe the policies, when you said this is what President Clinton has done, or this is what President Obama has done, the support went down because not as much as now, but back then the country was also very polarized. And there was a big part of the country that just was not going to approve of anything that Bill Clinton or Barack Obama did, no matter what it was. For a bunch of reasons with, with President Biden, he has the added challenge that people don't know that he's done things that you can tick off a bunch of things that have happened and people either don't know that they've happened or they don't necessarily connect it with president biden so he had the challenge not only of selling people on his policies and his proposals and his record but of reminding people of what it was and in a sense that that made his job more difficult but it also made it easier because when people heard what he had done and heard what he wanted to do and saw that in spite of the Republican attacks, he's very much he's very much in command of the podium and the platform and very capable of responding to the heckling from from the opposition party. I think people I think expectations were in some ways were so low that he was able to exceed expectations by giving a great speech as he did. In different ways, people thought that President Clinton, and even if they didn't like President Clinton or President Obama, people thought they were good speakers. Mm-hmm. With, with President Biden, I think he had, the expectations were lower, so the achievement was even greater. That's fascinating. Um, you know, that's so true that the the data is showing people don't know all that President Biden, I would say the Democrats who control the House and the Senate, they're really unaware of what Biden and the Democrats have done in the past two years. And it was interesting to me, even as much as I follow this, when I was comparing his State of the Union a year ago, and, you know, remember the scenario just one year ago, President Biden got up, we're in the middle, you know, of this, uh, or, you know, uh, two years ago when he first came in, we're in the middle of the pandemic, massive unemployment, stock market crashing even faster and stronger than it did during the Great Depression. And uh, people were like, what are we doing now? Russia was getting 
you know, drum, war drums beating. There was just so much wrong. And we had the January 6th insurrection just three weeks before he was inaugurated. So um, there was the scene that President Biden walked into was just full of crises and problems. And now here we are just two years later. And yes, the pandemic is still there, but it's very much more contained than it was. Life has largely returned to normal. Um, the election denials, most election deniers were defeated. Certainly all 11 election deniers running for secretary of state were defeated by sensible uh, people committed to safe elections. So it's uh, it's amazing. And the legislation, can you talk a little bit like what do you see as some of the achievements of President Biden since he's taken office two years ago? Well, first of all, I want to do a shout out to you for your role when alerting concerned people around the country the importance of the Secretary of State elections. <laughs> So thank you. I, 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 I appreciate do that. A shout out, a shout, shout out, get it right. A shout out to the host of the show for her role in, in 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 elevating the importance of Secretary of State elections and include and doing and, and ensuring that there be people in those jobs who are committed to protecting democracy. Thank I, th you. I, th I think probably the what best symbolized the difference between this State of the Union and last year's and the joint session speech two years ago is just a, in in many ways, if, if you had the sound off, it was a return to normality, that you, you did not have this, uh, the social distancing that you had two years ago, and I think even one year ago, you had a full house, literally, literally and figuratively. I think Bernie Sanders to his credit, was the only was one of the few people wearing a mask, and it was a sense that the, especially with the sound off, it was the sense that the political system had returned to normal. If you turned on the sound, the abnormality was the behavior of some of the more extreme members of the mm -hmm. Republican contingent, but the the logistics of it were normal once again, and it was as you said, it was. It's just a few years after a combination of crises that we haven't seen maybe since the 1930s. It was a medical, a worldwide pandemic. There's an economic crisis that followed from it. And there was a social, a, a, a constitutional crisis that followed from the January 6th insurrection and the attempt to overturn a, a, a democratic presidential election. So, and, and so there was a, a sense of a, I think of a return to normality on Tuesday night that you had all the members of the House and Senate there. You had all the members of the cabinet, except for the designated survivor, the secretary of labor, who was moving on to a new role in, in society. And it, it was in that, in that, in that sense, it was a normal state of the state of the union address. And I think I think people maybe don't even give President Biden credit for it, but there must be some level in which normal partisanship can return because the abnormal conditions of the past three years and more have have receded. And I think the beginning of the speech was a nod to normality, where President Biden shakes hands with the new the new House Speaker, a Republican, Kevin McCarthy. And the implicit message, the explicit message was let's work together for the common good. The implicit message is when my side doesn't win an election, we recognize it. We you know that 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 the pre President Biden went through the normal response to a peaceful turnover and a measure of political power in this country. He wasn't challenging it. He wasn't refusing to show up for it. He wasn't refusing to shake hands. So it was the first normal State of the Union address in, in quite some time. And if he doesn't get credit for it, President Biden should get credit for it. I think that the, how we, how we, he tried, I think how he tried to, I think succeeded in getting the message across was, again, was that he began as presidents do with the positive economic statistics. 
Then he set forth the challenge. And at some point, as presidents will do when they uh, do not, when their party does not control one or both houses of Congress, he asks the Republican, he asks the opposition party to join with him in finding some common ground for the common good. And then the re- Republicans walked into a trap. They didn't even walk into a trap. They said they set a trap for themselves, right. and they walked into it when he, when the president was talking about about saving Social Security and Medicare and not putting them on the chopping block because of the routine, which should be the routine matter of raising the debt limit. They started heckling him, and the heckling led into they're denying something that they had accused that they themselves had accused themselves of, which is having designs on cutting Social Security and Medicare. And when he attacks them for wanting to do it, they start heckling him and saying, no, we're never going to do that. So he makes the obvious counter statement, which is that's great. We've agreed we're never going to cut Medicare and Social Security and let's move on. So they lost a confrontation that they themselves had set up. And I think a subtext of it was if there's all this whispering campaign about Sleeping Joe and and whatnot, he showed that he was very much in command of the event, in command of the podium, and in command of the exchange with his noisiest critics. Yeah, I think that's so right. And, you know, it was extraordinary in the chambers that we had the president giving the State of the Union, and normally it's a very somber, sober affair, and people are polite. Um, the one time I remember one of the Republicans was jeering at Obama, it was kind of like shocking, and the guy got yeah. censured for speaking out. And yet here it was, th- this speech, there were multiple times when multiple Republicans were heckling the president. <laughs> from the floor of the house. And uh, I was, first of all, a little surprised, although not shocked, that Republicans, they're like breaking all the norms. They're being uh, obnoxious in many ways. That's just one more way. But what did really surprise me was the strong response that Biden gave. It was almost to me like, I mean, you've been in staff as I have with these elected officials. It was almost as if maybe they rehearsed, if you get heckled, this is what you can do. But I'm not sure they even thought about it. But Biden was so in the moment and so directly responding to them. And he said, and you know, if the listeners, if you haven't watched the State of the Union, it came about when Biden was saying, uh, I will protect Social Security and Medicare. I will make sure that we keep that promise to the American people. We don't want seniors to be going. And uh, some you know, Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, that's part of what this debt ceiling is about. How are these guys going to not lift the debt ceiling unless they cut the budget? And what are they going to cut the biggest entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. And the Republicans also are jumping up and down going, no, we didn't say that. And of course, they do say that. And they're saying it time and time again. The Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, had talked about cutting Medicare and Social Security. Um, it's in the platform out of Senator Scott, who was in charge of the platform for the Republicans in the Senate. He talks about sunsetting every piece of legislation after five years that requires funding. That includes Social Security and Medicare. So they were obviously not wrong, but the fact that Biden was so powerful and he just stood up right to them and said, well, great, you don't want to check my office and you'll see that I'm correct that Republicans are saying they're going to cut Social Security and Medicare. And secondly, I'm glad to hear now that you're converted and that we're in agreement that we're not going to cut, none of us are going to cut Social Security and Medicare. And it was like, boom, they're kind of locked in. So uh, I thought it really put the problem saying, you know, Biden is weak, he's too old, he's too feeble, he's not with it, he's only reading a script. All of that stuff, I was like, this guy is in command. <laughs> That's right. And one, I mean, he's also, I mean, one thing about having been around a long time is you know, you know the playbook. 
And Joe Biden was a senator in 1999 when President Clinton did something similar. He was talking about what to do with a surplus back in the days when, as the United States had with President Johnson and then with President Clinton, both of them Democrats, the country, the federal government actually had a surplus. And he's talking about what to do with the surplus. And he said, save so at his State of the Union address in 1999, he said, save Social Security first. And the Republicans didn't want to be caught not applauding saving Social Security. So um, what was generally a more moderate contingent of Republicans stood up and applauded alongside the Democrats. And he said, when they, he said the equivalent of, well, now that we agree on that, let's move forward. And in so doing, he had, had headed off Republicans using the surplus for tax cuts for the rich or some of their other priorities. Instead, it was going to go to, into the Social Security Trust Fund. So I think one thing we learned, we've learned from this whole debate about Social Security and Medicare is that the Republicans would like you to believe that they're about protecting the country from all kinds of imaginary hazards like critical race theory in the junior, in the junior high schools or God knows what else they, they claim to be protecting you from. But basically their, their basic impulse embedded in their DNA is to try to repeal the New Deal and the Great Society. Mm -hmm. And everything else is, is sort of window dressing for them. And it's, it's interesting now if President Biden is not only going on the kind of victory lap that presidents tend to do after his State of the Union, but he's sort of going on a let's look at the record lap. Or lap. So he goes to Wisconsin where he reminds people that Ron Johnson has called for cutting Social Security, and I believe he's in Florida today, I believe, and he's talking about how Senator Rick Scott had put out a 60-page document about cutting social, about sunsetting Social Security and and Medicare. So he's he's really, he's really correcting, going on on a, a victory lap, not only to remind people of the positive aspects of his own record, but also of the negative aspects of of the opposition's record. Right. And, you know, when you talk about the record of Biden over the past two years, it's really phenomenal. I mean, the only parallel I can think of is, um, you know, either FDR when he, he was coming in and his hundred days and LBJ, who had a great domestic agenda and tried to do it and then got undercut by his uh, by the Vietnam War and the loss of lives and the money that had to go into that. But Biden, think about what he's done. I mean, he cut child poverty in half. He passed the chips thing to invest in American technology. He passed the biggest climate action bill um, of anyone in history. Uh, he he has did the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, he tried to get more on paid parental leave and got beat back by um, you know, not getting enough support to do it. But he really put forward an amazing agenda and got a lot through the transportation and infrastructure bill. I mean, like, my God, I, people haven't even begun to recognize what he's done that's good. It's just starting now to go out, you know, we're going to fix this tunnel in Baltimore that's crumbling or this tunnel in New York and this bridge in Minnesota. So, I think he's got a lot there. It's it's a it's a very impressive record, wouldn't you agree? I, I very much agree. I, I I think that I'm trying to. I'm not going to claim that I have the answer, but trying to scope out why it is that so many voters, including Biden's own voters, don't credit him with what has been accomplished. Right. I think there's maybe. I think several explanations are, first of all, he is in, he's the, the recent pre, the pre, recent president, perhaps the president in our entire history, who is most familiar in the sense of having been in public life the longest. But he's also in some ways the most underexposed as president of any president, I think, in our 
in our memory. In fact, I, I suspect you'd find that if you compare how many times President Biden gives a major speech in a week compared to how many times during his first two years, President Clinton gave a major speech in one day. I'd make a little flippant there, but not not that, but not entirely. I think you'd find that President Clinton and most recent presidents spoke much more often in public and major occasions than President Biden does. And in part, that's an outgrowth of the precautions during the pandemic. But I think you'd find you'll find that. I think he's the most underexposed president since the first President Bush was on domestic issues. The first President Bush, George H.W. Bush, did not speak that often on domestic issues during his term. He spoke on foreign issues. Of course, there was the first Iraq war during his tenure, which mm -hmm. took, certainly took a lot of his attention. But I think President Biden is as underexposed across the boards as the first President Bush was on domestic issues. And the big difference, of course, is that the first President Bush did not accomplish a whole lot on domestic issues. And President Biden has. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's the first thing. I think the second thing is the decline of local news media. That if you go somewhere, as President Biden has done, not just this week, but over the past two years, if you go somewhere beyond the major media center, major media markets, and you announce an infrastructure project, the local newspapers, the local radio stations, the, the news departments, the local television stations have been decimated compared to what they were in the past. So you don't get the kind of, even the president of the United States announcing an infrastructure project does not get the, the kind of news coverage that they, they, they would have gotten in the past. And I think a third fact, a third factor, I think, is just the overwhelming salience of the culture wars, mm -hmm. many of which I think are just concocted to dis distract attention from, to put it crudely, the kind of class war that's going on in this kind of, kind of one-sided class war that's going on in this country for the past 40 years or more, and the hollowing out of the middle class and the attacks on the working class. But the culture wars have such salience that if you have one day where a governor announces that they're banning critical race theory and the use of the word Latinx and Lord knows what else, and on that same day, the president of the United States says they're building, they're rebuilding a bridge that has been in poor repair for the past 50 years, the culture war is going to get more attention and more and draw more controversy, which is what generates attention than the infrastructure project. So then the media environment has just gotten very abnormal in this country compared to what it was even during, certainly during the Clinton presidency, and I think even during the Obama presidency. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, that's a great analysis. I think you're right, David. So given that, what would you advise President Biden to do to help more people understand the incredible achievements he's had in the past two years? Well, I think the good news is that a, a lot of the me the metrics depend on what you're looking for. The, the President Biden has, other than I think the first, maybe the first month or two, he has not had good approval ratings for, the, you know, for his entire tenure as president. And yet you look at the results of the 2022 elections and he had the best midterms of any i think of any recent president since george w bush in 2002 and john f kennedy in 1962 and both of them were in the middle of international crises president kennedy during the cuban missile crisis and george W. Bush in the aftermath of 911 in the Afghanistan war. And President Biden, I don't I don't think he's benefited from the international crises that we've had. So I think there's some way in which even 
if he hasn't sold himself, either he sold his product or the product sells itself, that people may not see him as an inspirational figure in the way that some other progressive presidents were in the way that Ronald Reagan was. But as he says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And when they have a choice between President Biden and between mainstream Democrats, on the one hand, and election deniers and culture warriors and all kinds of people preaching extremism and exclusionism, exclusionism. On the other side, we see what the results were in 2022. And I think the State of the Union message may have been a breakthrough kind of a moment because he reaches the largest audience that any kind of political event is going to reach this year. The ratings are overwhelmingly good. And the kind of, on the one hand, it, it doesn't, it may reach the audience of the people who are most interested in politics and current events. But on the other hand, they're the kind of people who are active in campaigns and influence their friends and family and neighbors and coworkers. So I think it's possible he did have a breakthrough moment with the State of the Union address. Yeah, I, I've i just seen a little bit of data on that. It sounds like there was a very positive response to the speech, particularly among Democrats, but also among independents and even Republicans. Uh, I And I think you're right. I think some people were just surprised he had the moxie he had. And he really, I think, made a very compelling case for what he's done and, and what he hopes to do. I would add, by the way, to your analysis of why he's kind of underexposed, Remember, he stepped in and at the front edge of the pandemic and right. all, all the events were canceled. Right. People That's weren't right. coming together. And I mean, now people are kind of into the Zoom thing, but you don't even get the same kind of exposure on a Zoom as you would at a at a big rally event or something like that. So I think the pandemic really put a damper on people being able to come together and him being able to speak. But let's face it, you're right. I mean, he's not an inspirational speaker. I mean, we we got spoiled by Bill Clinton, who's brilliant, spoiled by Barack Obama, who's a brilliant speaker. Um, and Joe Biden is like regular Joe. That's right. <laughs> he talks, he stumbles a fair amount, and but you know his heart is in the right place, and he you genuinely get the feeling he cares about working people because he is one <laughs> and he knows right. that life. And I th he takes that almost a negative about not being a great speaker and makes it part of his. I mean, it was like Mayor Menino did that in Boston. They called him Mayor Mumbles because he was always kind of tripping on himself when he spoke. But he won election after election four times because people knew he was getting the job done and he cared about people. And um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the progressive side. We talked about, yes, we've made the progress and the achievements, and we have possibility of the job that remains undone, what we have yet to do, the job to be finished. What are some of the things that struck you about the agenda Biden laid out for what he wants to do for the remainder of his current term and possibly for re-election? Well, I think one thing that he gets that a lot of the elite media and the public policy elites haven't gotten, they may be get, beginning to understand it now, is that you have a new center in this country. The center isn't where most, isn't the midpoint between Washington, D.C. Democrats and Washington, D.C. Republicans. The, center, the real center in the country is where most people are. If you have something that 70% of the people want, that's where the center is. And I think what President Biden and the staff who advised him on the speech, I think what they get is that the center in this country is for some kind of economic populism. That the, the center in the country understands that a lot of the country has been left out and left behind and, and locked out and thinks that no one here, no one in DC cares about them and wants to create more good paying jobs, wants there to be the possibility that you can earn a three figure 
income without having a four-year college degree wants there to be, as President Biden said, the possibility that if you don't live in the most successful metropolitan areas in this country, that you could still, a young person could still get a good job without leaving home. And I think there's a consensus on that. There's a consensus on wanting to bring, especially in the aftermath of the national security crisis with China and in the longer aftermath of the disruption of supply chains during during the COVID pandemic, people want to bring the supply chains back home. People want to make things in this country, not just to design them, not just to engineer them, not just to sell them, not just to finance them, but they want to make them in this country. And when President Biden's calling for something like a made as he has for the made in America requirement on the products that are used to build infrastructure, that's not just going to be something that the Democrats are going to vote for. That's something that the Republicans are either going to vote for or they're going to pay a political price if they don't vote for it. I think the political dynamic in this country since 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, has been that the Republicans are culture warriors and economic reactionaries and social exclusionists, but they masquerade as economic populists. And I think what Pre President Biden did on Tuesday night was not only to call them out on not on, on protecting Social Security and Medicare, but also to call them out on saying, if you really are, if you really care about working Americans, as you say you do, if you really are as some of the new breed of Republicans like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and others say they are, they, they say they're a working class party. If you really are that, then build infrastructure with American-made products and union labor. Build semiconductors here. And, you know, the, there's a whole litany of program of have green jobs that are good good paying jobs and union jobs, restore workers' rights to organize. So there's a whole litany of understandable and popular proposals that he set forth on Tuesday night, which the Democrats are going to support, which he's the first president, Democratic president since Harry Truman, to wholeheartedly support in plain English, and which the Republicans either have to vote for it, or if they vote against it, they're going to have a hard time going before their voters next time and saying, well, we're pro-worker, we're pro-jobs, we want rising wages, and so we want to make things in America, we want to hire American. Because he's, he's, he's calling the question on it. He has an actual agenda that they can vote for and have a bipartisan victory for the common good, but they can vote against it and unmask themselves as people who are phony populists. I think that's great. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he is exposing the phony uh, economic populace there. And I love that you call him the jobs president. And now that you say it, I was like, why isn't he calling himself that all the time? Like that should be like <laughs> major mantra in every messaging coming out of the White House. Um, and part of what I love about Biden is he's not just talking about creating jobs, which he's done, as you said, he's created more jobs in two years as president than any other president has in a full four-year term. So hats off to Joe Biden for getting the jobs uh, back in, in shape and then some. Um, but not only is he creating the jobs, he is addressing the political power problem that working people have had where there's been this right-wing Republican assault on the ability of workers to organize in unions. And I know, you know, some people think, oh, the decline of unions may be because whatever, they're old fashioned or, you know, whatever they think, why they're going down. But the biggest reason I think unions are declining as a percentage of people working is the incredible assault that they're under and uh, the lack of legal protection that unions have had, that workers have had to organize unions. And I noticed one of the things Biden mentioned in his uh, State of the Union address this week was encouraging the Congress to pass the PRO Act, which would strengthen the legal support 
of unions to organize. What do you think about kind of the political power of working people that Biden is also supporting? Well, I agree with what with what you've said. With what you said, I think there's all there's always been. You know, there's the old saying about design. You know, building a plane while you're flying it. There's always been the the sort of the, the double whammy that unions have to build their membership strength and their economic strength, but at the same time they need political strength to get guarantees of their rights to to build their membership strength. But you can't have the political strength without the membership strength. And to some extent, you can't have the membership strength without the political strength. So they just have to do everything all at once, do it on the fly, and see, seek out targets of opportunity as well as the strategy, strategies they pursue in the abstract. And you, you see a, there's a wave of organizing in this country now. It probably isn't exactly where veteran union people would have expected it would have been 10 years ago but you see the people who serve coffee in starbucks and the people who work in warehouses for amazon and nurses and other healthcare workers and you can just sort of call the role of all kinds of workers and all kinds of jobs who are organizing because they can't take it anymore and the, the unions have to sort of reach out, offer assistance, if not get ahead of the parade, at least march in the parade, and understand that it's going somewhere that no one would, would necessarily have sketched out 10 or 20 years ago. What's interesting, is, as you said, the rap on unions has been that they're old fashioned, but you look at where the unions are growing and they're growing now, if not, yet in in recognized memberships they're growing in terms of activism in the cutting edge of the economy you're talking about companies like amazon and starbucks that didn't exist the last time unions mm -hmm. were above 15 percent in, in, in density in this country the younger workers at at starbucks younger workers at at amazon because all Older workers physically can't do some some of that work, but the hours and conditions that Amazon has, and you find I think that Generation Z is the most pro-union generation, probably since their, my guess would be great grandparents who built the unions in the 1930s, and it, 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 so it, it, the unions are growing at the cutting edge of the economy, and even if President Biden is from a generation that's old enough to remember the last time that unions were strong. He's the most pro-union and pro-worker president again since Harry Truman. And if I could, I'd like to draw that Harry Truman analogy because I think it's going to become maybe a staple of political commentary pretty soon to the point that you and I will, and the folks listening to this show will get sick of it. So let, let's talk about it before everyone gets sick of it. You have, <laughs> okay. you have a president who... They, I'm not saying they're right. Obviously, very different people in very different times. But with both of them, you have people who served as vice president with much more elo eloquent and char charismatic presidents. Harry Truman with FDR, Joe Biden with Barack Obama. They both were probably written off as being at the tail end of their public careers when they became president. Truman at that, I think, was in his late 60s when he became president. We know how old President Biden is. They both, I guess I'm, I'm elevating this importance because I mostly make a living as a speechwriter. They both, at some point in their lives, I think probably much younger with Truman, much older with Biden, realized they were not going to talk like the eloquent presidents of their own lifetimes. They were gonna, and they found their natural voice. I think Harry Truman probably always spoke in his natural voice. He didn't try to sound like Woodrow Wilson or Franklin D. Roosevelt. I think a younger Joe Biden, for understandable reasons, probably grew up admiring John F. Kennedy and wanted to sound like John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. And then he comes of age politically in the era of Bill Clinton. And then he serves as Barack Obama's vice president. 
But I think on Tuesday night, you found a president who is comfortable speaking in his own natural voice, which is very simple, down to earth, colloquial. What you mentioned earlier, a book called Speaking American. I would say that Joe Biden, as with Harry Truman, speaks American. He doesn't speak. His natural voice is not an elevated, affected language. It's short words, short sentences, ideas that people can understand, talking about basic things, jobs and wages, families and communities. And I think people are going to respond to that. He's going to be speaking plain English. And you saw the contrast between him and the Republican response on Tuesday night, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas. Joe Biden gets up there, he's talking about jobs and wages and health care and building, literally and figuratively building bridges. He's speaking plain English about things people worry about every day. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, as Joe Biden would say, God bless her, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders is getting up there and talking about, as governor of Arkansas, she's worried about critical race theory. I mean, how many how many people in Arkansas are really worried about, you know, unless someone scares the hell out of tries to scare the hell out of them? How many are worried about critical race theory? How many are worried about something, our dread thing called woke? She got I mean, she gets up there and she speaks about all these cultural issues in a state which, and I worked for, for Bill Clinton, starting with when he was governor, a state which Bill Clinton realized needs good jobs, it needs good schools, it needs economic development. He needs to control the environmental consequences of some of the economic development they've had, like the chicken plants. Has ba- Arkansas has basic needs. It shouldn't be worrying about esoteric theories that, that someone is trying to scare them of being taught in graduate schools around the country or something. It needs someone who's going to, as, as Bill Clinton did, as Dale Bumpers did, as a Republican named Winthrop Rockefeller did. Arkansas needs needs a governor who cares about jobs and schools and communities. It doesn't need someone fighting culture wars from the pages of esoteric right-wing journals. And I think there's just a governor, Huckabee Sanders, talked about the division in the country being between normal and crazy. But I think when people see Joe Biden, I think they see and hear normal. And when they see some of the people who are heckling him or responding to him, I think they see what Governor Huckabee Sanders was defining as the opposite of normal. I think that's right. I think that's the new divide we've got politically. It's no longer so much left versus right. It's more normal versus crazy. You know, I there's a lot I don't agree with on Liz Cheney, probably everything, but I stand shoulder to shoulder with Republican Liz Cheney in standing for our democracy and uh, standing up against Trump in the attempt to have a coup to stay in power. Um, so I think, and I, I the polls seem to indicate that for the midterms, you mentioned how well the Democrats did in the midterms, which surprised everybody. Um, but part of it was the Republicans are just coming off as Looney Tunes, which I'm glad they are because they are Looney Tunes. So I'm glad the average voter is seeing that and not voting for most of these characters to be uh, to be in office. So um, do you think this is going to be enough? Biden, he is talking about jobs and schools and health care. Um, do you think it's going to be enough to bring back the white working class into the Democratic Party? We will see. I, I mean, I, I think the, the I think it may, may say something that the same evening that President Biden gave his State of the Union speech, the Democrats, I think, won three special elections in Pennsylvania. That gives the Democratic Party control over the state legislature in Pennsylvania again. And you had Josh Shapiro getting elected governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman getting elected senator from Pennsylvania. I think you look at, I'm not going to say it's, you know, it, that it's all going in one direction, but if you look at the state, the states from the heartland in 
in the 2022 elections, you have Pennsylvania, Michigan, of course, Illinois voting Democratic. You have a Democratic governor winning in Wisconsin, and then you have the the sad exception of of Ohio. But it says something that in Ohio, while I was disappointed with Tim Ryan, not I was pleased with his campaign, but disappointed with the showing, he actually got a higher percentage of the vote than any statewide Democrat since Sherrod Brown has gotten in Ohio. He did better in Ohio, much better than a very good but underfunded candidate for governor this time, better than the candidate for governor last time, higher percentage than, sadly, than Joe Biden got in 2020 or than Hillary Clinton got in 2016. So even in Ohio, under very difficult circumstances, with a, with Tim Ryan's campaign that focused on working class voters, we did better in Ohio than we had done in the past, if not 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 nowhere near as well as we need to do. I, th I think one there's a tendency to, and I'm sure you've written and spoken about this many times, but there's a tendency to sort of go from talking about working class Americans to go to talking about white working class Americans and maybe even narrow cast it further to white working class men. And what, what we have now is a, as we've had from most of our history, is a very diverse working class. And I think someone called it, you know, if someone was trying to work their way through talking about a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-gender working class. And at some point, they just said a multi-everything working class. And it's, you know, it, it is white guys working in factories and construction sites. It's also women and people of color working in factories and construction sites. And it's people working in hospitals. It's people working in Starbucks. It's There's a, a lot of people in this country who are working for someone else, working for low wages, and have all kinds of gripes about their job, including you mentioned the book, Love the Work, Hate the Job. People whose gripes are not only about wages and hours, as important as that is, but also gripes about quality and safety. People who are concerned want to do their best work, as with the nurses, as with people in the media, as with aircraft engineers. People want to do their best work, but they've become convinced that they care more about doing their best work than the organization that they're working for cares about, about quality. And you have all these workers, different demographic groups, different kinds of jobs, different kinds of industries, and there's all kinds of discontent. And I think the Democrats can speak to that discontent much better than the Republicans can, because first of all, the Democrats' instinct is to bring people together, not drive them apart. And there's no way anyone's going to get what they want on the job if they're fighting with their coworker instead of trying to deal with their employer. The Republicans, a lot of the more extreme Republicans, don't think that half of the workers should even be there. They don't quite believe that women should be outside the home. They don't quite believe that immigrants should be in this country and so on. And they also, you know, as you say, they don't support the basic rights to organize and bargain that would be protected in the in the PRO Act and were won over Republican opposition in the National Labor Relations Act under FDR and then over the years for public sector workers and healthcare workers and other groups of workers who have been left out of the original legislation. So if it's a matter of trying to unite an entire working class of people, all kinds of demographics, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of backgrounds, rather than mark by targeting the cultural, what the imagined cultural grievances of one segment, I think the Democrats, if they do what they should be doing, have a, have a great advantage over the Republicans. Well said. Um, I were just have a few minutes left on the program, and I did promise our listeners I would ask you to give us a behind-the-scenes peek of uh, putting together, like, what does it take to put together a State of the Union um, address? You were chief speechwriter in the White House for President Clinton, um, can you just give us a little snapshot, 
behind the scenes what's going on in that? It's a whole government effort. It begins usually with the president meeting with the speechwriters, with other key advisors, and talking about, and I use the word he because unfortunately every president has been a he, but talking about what he would like to say to the country in the State of the Union address. Then every cabinet agency, every every cabinet department, every major agency, everybody with an axe to grind weighs in with the accomplishments that they want to be recognized and the proposals that they want that they want to be presented. And in my day, which was before the widespread use of email, the speech writers were just inundated with paper from every conceivable stakeholder and what the president should say. And working with that and working more importantly from the president's guidance, we would come up with a draft and send it over to the president. And with Bill Clinton, he would, while he's a voracious reader and a great writer, he understood that speeches are meant to be spoken and heard, not meant to be written and read. So his edit editing process would be part of his rehearsal process. He would take the podium in the White House Theater and start giving the State of the Union based on the draft in front of him. And he would do something that not many people can do, but he can do, which is edit while he spoke. And instead of speak very often, instead of speaking the words that were there on paper in front of him, he would speak the words that were in his head and that were better words. Mm -hmm. And we would have tape recorders running and we would be taking notes and we would then have, then we would then make revisions in the draft and the draft for the speech based on the edits he had made while speaking. And we would go back and forth with him on those. Sometimes we'd get back. And again, this is before email. And I don't know how it's done now. But we would get back scrawled edits on pieces on pages. Sometimes we would all go back with, into to the White House theater, which, which was much better, and he would he would speak it rather than edit it. And after what was often true with his major speeches, after about two dozen revisions, we'd have a final version, and either we the deadline would intervene or. The deadline would approach before there was a final version, and he'd still be editing it in the limousine going up to the Capitol. And sometimes he'd be editing it at the podium, or just speaking it as he chose oh, at the podium. And the result was something that the pundits didn't always like, but the public liked. And I remember in the first speech, joint session speech, I still remember. The, I think I always, as long as I'm lucid, remember the day, February 17, 1993. According to the Washington Post, they compared the transcript with the text that they got right before he, he went up to the podium. He, he improvised about 25% of that speech. Wow. On a State of the Union address? Yeah, and a joint, well, joint strictly speaking, a joint, oh, joint session. session. Yeah. And there's an even better story, which unfortunately is true. I, I mean, it's fortunate that it's true, but at the time it seemed unfortunate. With his second joint session speech, which was on the health care plan, somebody, and I will go to my grave saying it was not a speechwriter, but somebody loaded the wrong version, the wrong speech, not the wrong version, the wrong speech into the teleprompter. And instead of having the healthcare speech in the teleprompter, he had the previous speech, the economic plan speech from February in the teleprompter. And he gets up there. And he looks at the teleprompter, and there's the wrong speech in the teleprompter. And I can only imagine what would have happened to some, every successor other than President Obama if they had had an improvised policy with the wrong speech in the teleprompter. But he, from memory, and occasionally referring to the safety net, which was a, a, print, a printed copy of the speech in front of him on the podium, but mostly from memory and knowledge, he spoke perfectly until we in the White House communications staff. By communications, I don't mean public affairs people. I mean the technical people who dealt with the communication systems were able to load the, the right speech into the, tel into the teleprompter. 
But you, no one knew, no one in the listening or in the viewing audience would have guessed that this was going on. No one was fired or yelled at over it. And it was just one more glitch in a virtuoso performance. Incredible. Well, what a great story. And uh, we're going to need to end there. That's all the time we have. David Kuzner, thank you so much for being with us today and for your great insights into America and uh, our democracy. Well, thank you. Listeners, great, we'll see you program. next. Thank you. Listeners, we'll see you next Thursday, 3 p.m. Eastern. Look forward to seeing you then. Bye for now. <laughs>